Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everybody. Today on the show, we have someone who is going to be talking about a very personal experience, one where he was not in a cult per se, but was raised by somebody who is narcissistic and can relate to people's stories of having been raised in a cult. And sometimes people who have been in relationships with narcissists of any kind, they will sometimes refer to it as a one-on-one cult. And there is so much overlap. There is so much that people see in similar manipulations and also similar after effects this kind of sense that you don't matter as much as the other person, that you are there to kind of serve their ego needs, and also that no matter how they treat you, you have to be fine with it and just roll with it. So today on the show, we're going to hear part one of my conversation with Thomas. Thomas is from Denmark. His English is exceptional. And he grew up alone with a covert narcissistic mother who kept him socially isolated, emotionally abused him, and manipulated his sense of reality. Most of his life, he didn't realize that anything was wrong because of the covert nature of the emotional abuse and control and the amount of gaslighting he was exposed to. A year ago, he started to get a better grasp of his own reality and slowly began to understand what had really happened. Thomas's purpose for contacting me and wanting to be on the show, which is wonderful, was that he was hoping that his story could help others better recognize the signs of covert abuse and control. Here's part one of my two-part conversation with Thomas. I am very excited to have Thomas on the show today. He is somebody who I actually invited to come and speak to you for some very significant reasons. So I wanted to first let him introduce himself. So good morning from Los Angeles to you and I guess almost good evening in Denmark. Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, it's actually evening here. So do you want to talk a little bit about who you are and what you do just in a general sense? So people have a sense of you in a general way and what you do. Yeah, my name is Thomas. I'm a 37-year-old father of two boys. I'm self-employed. I live in a small house in Copenhagen with my family. That sounds lovely. I want to go at some point. Uh, Your story is actually probably relatable to a larger audience in terms of their own experiences, because people will sometimes say, well, I can hear about somebody's pain and what they've gone through and the confusion. I also, you know, was not on a mountaintop following a guru and I wasn't doing other things that feel very kind of distinct and extreme. 
Instead, I was in a family system that played with my head, or I was in a relationship where I suddenly felt like I lost a sense of self, or I thought someone who I really loved and really liked was one way. And suddenly my eyes opened and I realized that the impact they were having on me was for a reason because they have a disorder or that the reason that I was feeling a certain way about myself was because they needed for me to feel that way about myself because they have this issue. So there is indoctrination that happens, I think, all the time. And when it is this covert emotional manipulation with someone who really has an issue that doesn't get illuminated until later on, you can grow up feeling, especially when it's a parent-child relationship, grow up feeling like something's different or odd, but you can't quite put your finger on it because kids aren't born in the world having a sense of the diagnostic and statistical manual, you know, and all of the diagnoses in it, right? And the checklist, they don't walk around the house with that. So I have also heard people say that, you know, when they have gone through things where it was kind of subtle, sometimes not so subtle, manipulation and indoctrination, that it was all kind of hidden and invisible. And they didn't think that people were then going to understand their experience. They, first of all, didn't even know quite how to describe it and how to put it into words, but how to translate it for other people when it's invisible. And I remember a client telling me that she had begged for her, I think it was her husband, to hit her, which is cringeworthy when you hear that. But she wanted to be able to go to the police and say, here, look, there's some evidence it's visible and I have a bruise as opposed to he's gotten into my head. And, you know, then how do you get help for that? And how do other people understand it when they can't see it? So that's why I was so moved by your story, because it's something that a lot of people talk to me about and they say I wasn't in a cult. But so let's hear about your experience. I'd love to just have you talk about kind of the chronology, just growing up and I know you're going to be speaking about your mom and just what she was like and her beliefs as well and wherever you want to take that story and then I'll sort of guide it to what the listeners I know are interested in finding out more about. So go ahead. I grew up alone with uh, my mom. She was a single mom, never had any boyfriends, any husbands. We moved quite a bit. I think when I was a kid, we moved like five times, six times, something like that. She was always very uh, supportive of my interests. And she would always uh, help me a lot with the uh, stuff that I was interested in. But it was always a little too much, <laughs> like, you know, like invasive. As a kid, I knew she was fairly eccentric. But um, I always thought it was in a, like, in a well-meaning way. Like she would do stuff that was kind of childish in a way that other parents wouldn't do. but. It was also kind of fun to have a, a parent that didn't play by the rules as much as the other parents did. She was very into like new age stuff, um, but there was no coherent like direction to it. There was no like one religious direction. It was kind of just like window shopping, different belief systems. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good phrase, yes. But there was, there was definitely, especially when I was a smaller kid, there was a lot of talk about reincarnation and gurus and um, like spirits, like ghosts and supernatural stuff. 
she would tell me about gurus like they had magical powers, like they could do clairvoyance and they could heal people with their thoughts and all this kind of supernatural stuff. So that's kind of the environment I grew up in. It wasn't very strict. So whenever I questioned it, she would always kind of pull back a little bit. I think I was always a very curious and inquisitive kid. So I would seek out information. So when she told me about something, I would go read a book about it. So I would try to cut through the confusion, I think, by going to the library and figuring out like, all right, how does this work? And then she would pull back a bit. If I told her, like, I looked this up, this is not how the world works. Then she'd be like, oh, no, you're so smart. And then she would find something else in this weird, like, magical reality that she was kind of always indoctrinating me with, I guess. So there was all this supernatural religious stuff going on. Um, She was always being very supportive of my interests to the point of being, like, invasive. And then there was the whole um, issue around uh, my dad. I'm the result of an affair my mom had with um, my dad, who was married to another woman and has three older kids. And I didn't uh, uh, see him as a kid. And I was always told by my mom, as soon as you're older, you can start seeing him. He promised me that. I was just told that because his wife didn't want any contact between him and my mom, I had to be old enough to go there myself by the train. So I was like waiting constantly. She would occasionally, she would like um, yell at me because she was like on the TV sometimes. She was like used as an expert in the news occasionally. So I'd be like off somewhere playing and she'd be like, Thomas, come quickly. And I would run to the TV and it would be like too late because it was just like a 10 second clip. She would be like, oh, you're amazing. Smart dad was on TV and always telling me stories about how this person was, was so great. And I would, uh, I would see him as soon as I was a little older. And at the same time, she would kind of paint this picture about how, how I was kind of broken because I didn't have a male role model and always like include me in those thoughts from a fairly young age. I always grew up with this understanding that I was different from all my other friends and that I was kind of broken because I didn't have a male role model. And I was kind of waiting for that relationship to materialize at some point. First of all, it's very sad to hear about the waiting. Very sad. That here your father is this very important, special person who is this expert in things where he's going to be, you know, on the news. And then I suppose she's wanting you to come into the room to see him so you can feel proud of your father or your lineage, your DNA, but then saying you're broken because you don't have him. So it's like the raising you up and slamming you down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's kind of a general pattern. I guess you could say like I have like a Google degree in narcissism by now. Like I've been reading a lot. So like a lot of this is popular psychology terms. But I think the term that I that I read that explained this is called future faking, which is like the pattern basically. So so whenever she felt that I had any kind of positive emotion about anything, you would paint this kind of utopic picture of what could be in the future and get me all excited about it. And I would, of course, become disappointed because it had no base in reality. And that was kind of the same thing with all my different interests. Whenever I was, I was interested in something, she would kind of invade the subject. Like, I liked drawing as a kid. And she would kind of invade it and tell me how talented I was and how amazing my drawings was. And I was just a small kid. I was like, I don't know, six years old, something, seven years old. Basically, just create this 
false narrative that I was special and I was specially talented. And like in the future, the world would recognize my, <laughs> my great talent. Interesting. Feels like a projection, what she's needing for her. And then assuming that's what you're needing for you, or is it that you were going to be a reflection of her? All that stuff comes back to her wanting stuff that gives her higher status. So one of the things she did with the drawing stuff was taking me to one of the biggest museums here in town where all the art students, like adult art students, sit and draw old Greek statues. <laughs> and I was like put on a chair there and made to draw statues, which of course created some attention because there was no other seven, eight-year-old kids there drawing statues. And then she would kind of, yeah, get that as her supply, I guess. And at some point I would be so burned out from having to perform like that. And all the joy I felt doing that activity would be, would be gone. And then uh, I would find something else to do that uh, wasn't weaponized against me like that. And so then when you're sitting there in this museum drawing these statues, were you thinking, I don't know if I'm as good as she's saying that I am? What was going on for you internally? It's many years ago. I'm not sure I remember that vividly anymore, but I felt extremely self-conscious and a little confused, as I recall it. But again, most of the other adults that I encountered in an environment like that were being nice to me. So they would come up and be like, oh, that's very good. That's very nice. After I've been sitting like drawing for a couple of hours. So that kind of reinforced the narrative that I was like this special art talent, which I think was yeah extremely damaging as a kid. Because it's kind of impossible to not fail when the expectations are set that high. You can only kind of disappoint. Yeah. Okay. My goodness. Okay. So it also kind of introduces you to this idea of not being in touch with reality. This woman, Dr. Margaret Singer, she was a professor at University of California, Berkeley, and she studied cults and re-education camps. And she said that when you're in this kind of system, you learn to deny the evidence of your senses. And so you go along with, I guess, your mom's reality until that's not quite working anymore, until you get grounded and you see what reality is, I suppose. So tell me more, though, about growing up with her. What were some of the other differences, the things that were different about your upbringing? So I had way different rules about safety <laughs> than a lot of other, other people. In general, I was a very confused and anxious kid. So I had kind of, a, I guess, like a fascination with like survivalist prepper stuff. Like I was really into weapons and like being able to go out in nature and just survive there. And like I wanted to be like a ninja that could just handle anything. So I had a lot of weapons because I was interested in that. So I think I was three years old when I was allowed to sit outside and just play with a knife the first time. When I was four years old, I almost punctured one of my eyes with a knife, just cutting a piece of string because I yeah, was a small kid. I scratched my cornea in my eye and luckily it didn't puncture. But that didn't make any difference in what I was allowed to do with knives. I was still allowed to just play with them. But I had this huge weapon collection. When I was seven, I got a sword, like a full-size metal sword that was uh, sharp. She actually made that for me in a metal shop at her school. As a mom, that makes my heart skip a beat. As you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was a, not a good idea. And I was allowed to play with that. Uh, and then when I was eight, I was like fencing with a friend of mine and I cut his finger. 
And then, then there was a little stricter rules about that. It was still lying in my, in my room. So I could have just grabbed it anytime, but I was told I wasn't allowed to like fence around with that. When I was seven, I was running around in like a suburban neighborhood shooting um, a fiberglass bow with like a metal arrow tips. Yeah, just stuff like that. Making illegal fireworks. When I was nine, 10, I was into like, yeah, bombs were fascinating. So she literally went into the workshop with me and a friend of mine and helped, helped us make homemade, not like explosives, but like take fireworks and take the, the black powder out and put that into a different box and blow it up. Just stuff like that, that other parents wouldn't allow. At the same time, there was this weird fixation on some stuff being very, very dangerous. So like at one time I came home from the forest, I'd been out playing with some friends of mine and we had thrown pine cones at each other. And it was a great day of just playing. And then she completely freaked out because pine cones could put out an eye if you got hit in the eye by a pine cone. Oh, now, now she's worried about your eye. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I was grounded for a week. I couldn't go outside. I was just had to sit in my room for a week. It was extremely confusing because with, in some areas, there was literally no boundaries. And in other areas, it was very, very restrictive. I want to just jump in here for a second and say that you know, often when people are raised in environments that are very strict in certain ways, but also not with it making sense, where the person in charge is indiscriminately strict. And also the thing that's, let's say, wrong on Tuesday might be right on Wednesday and things change a lot. There is an anxiety that's raised in the people who are affected by this. Because you can't master the system because you don't know what the system is and you don't know when it's going to be changing and it can cause people to be on edge. Is that the impact that it had on you? Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. So like thinking back, I think basically there was no coherent rules or morals either. It was all about the will of my mother, just making sure that I did what she wanted me to do. So she would also get really, really angry sometimes. I was never physically abused, but she would be like screaming, stomping the floors, slamming doors, stuff like that. But there was never really any pattern to when that set off. So I couldn't predict it, which was something I remember as being extremely scary. Wow, that's very scary. And with the pine cones also, which is interesting. I'm going to go back to that for a moment because I think to try to understand the logic, they're really isn't necessarily logic from the outside, but inside it made sense to her. And I'm wondering, because, you know, pine cones, of course, are a lot less dangerous than illegal fireworks and swords, because it really is like having a snowball fight. I mean, it's a little uh, sharper, but still it's the same idea. At the same time, I wonder if she punished you because it wasn't her idea. That might very well have been. I'm trying to understand, and maybe there's no way to understand it, but I don't know why it would have been wrong. So it kind of ties in with some other stuff that was going on. So she, she always had a scary story about stuff. Like she's, she's really, really good at steering a conversation towards something tragic. So it might be like an urban legend related to something. It might be like someone she knows or someone, one of her friend's friends or something. But she always has this, this ability to bring tragic, uh, terrible, disgusting um, scary stories into almost any conversation. One of the stories she had been telling for years had been about 
a woman that lived in the town that, that we lived in at that time, we'd gotten a stone thrown in her eye as a kid. So it might tie in with that, but like that's one of her primary ways of like manipulating other people's reality and feelings is by telling stories. Okay, interesting. And those kinds of stories that would draw people's attention? Sounds like she had a flair for the dramatic. Oh, for sure, for sure. Yeah, okay. And so also, you know, it sounds like there wasn't an awareness of appropriate child development and stages and what children should be exposed to in terms of danger and also stories. So it sounds like there was exposure to things that were beyond, you know, your emotional capacity to handle them. Uh, Yeah, that was for sure. But it was, again, it was this weird, it was kind of weird and double-sided. Because at some point, she would be extremely restrictive. So like, I wasn't allowed to watch like violent movies or play violent computer games because that was very terrible and damaging and you should stay away from that. Bad people do that. It was always this very black and white version of the world. But at the same time, there was a lot of, yeah, the stories she told me and this weird magical reality with like ghosts and dark forces, (laughs) like... Yeah, flying around. Wow. Were you able to sleep at night? No. I've had like sleep issues for most of my life. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible at falling asleep. A friend of mine that I, that I visited as a kid fairly often was all, told me as an adult that he was always terrified to, to sleep at our place because my mom would tell really scary ghost stories and she would tell them like they, they were true. Like she would use other adults as evidence that this happened. Like she would say, like this friend of mine lived in a house where there was a lot of ghosts because it was a very old house. And she was actually like pushed down a stair by a ghost once, stuff like that. And then she would always like block out the light completely in the room where I slept. So there was like really, really dark curtains. So it was pitch black. And that was terrifying. Yeah, I was very scared about the dark for most of my childhood. And it tied into this weird control game where like then I would ask her to go sleep in her, uh, in her room. And I wasn't always allowed to do that. So again, I had to kind of be on her good side to get away from the ghosts. I mean, I just think about how independent you had to be, self-sufficient, and how you had to protect yourself from a lot, even ghosts or the idea of ghosts, because she implanted this fear in you and then wasn't offering you protection or compassion after you were up at night because of it. There's so much I want to ask about that, but I know there's more. So we'll come back to these sorts of things. Now, as the conceptualization of it all has shifted, the more you've learned and, and realized about her and the manipulation and all of it. Tell me from there, at this time that you're talking about, like when you're saying your friend was scared of coming over and sleeping over, is that when you were a teenager? No, no, I was a small kid. Uh, we've been like, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight. Wow. Okay. And then what happened after that? Yeah. So I'm going go to go back to my, to my dad for a while. Mm-hmm. As I told you, like I was kind of waiting for contact with him because I was told that it was so important for me and that I could never grow up to be like a proper functioning male adult without any male role models. And always this kind of pseudo Freudian narrative about just gender and yeah, weird stuff like that. So when I was eight years old, my mom made my dad visit us for a single night. And I, I don't know what she's told him, but I, apparently it made him show up. So he was there for like 
uh, he ate dinner with us and then he left again. And I was under the impression that this is when I finally get to see my dad. So I like, I showed him my room and I was like, after we ate dinner, I was like, can I go outside and play? Because I thought that like from now on, I'm going to have a relationship with this person. And then I went out and played with my friends and I was like, bragged like, yeah, my dad came to visit. And then he went home at night and then I realized that he didn't want to see me. It was like a one-time thing. Then my mom, she got a letter from him and I can't remember the, the words, but basically the letter was addressed to her explaining why he couldn't have contact with me. And like she read the letter out to me while she was like crying and then telling me how, how sorry she was that she couldn't give me a dad. Like in that, she was also saying, without saying it, I was going to grow up to be like a broken person. And then after a couple of years, she kind of pushed me to write him a letter because then I was, I was old enough. I might've been like 11 or something. I was old enough to go by train myself because then I would have been able to go to where he lived and visit him. And I wrote the letter and he called and I talked to him on the phone and he explained, yeah, I'm sorry, that can't happen. So I got rejected again. And then I think I was 19, maybe. Yeah, 19, my late teens. Then I contacted him again. And then he agreed to meet me for like, yeah, a talk. And, and it was basically, we walked around town for an hour and it felt very much like, you know, like damage control from his side. He was like, yeah, what, so what do you need to know? And then he told a little bit about his childhood and stuff. And then he basically like ran off. Ran off. And I remember that he seemed kind of scared. <laughs> like uh, um, he was afraid someone's going to see him or it was, it had this, this very um, like stressed out vibe the entire time. And that's the last time I saw him. Then I didn't have any, any contact with him after that. And then he died like five years ago. Oh, it's very, very sad. I'm so sorry that that's the way it played out and that your meetings with him were so few and far between and not satisfying and certainly not what your mother said was going to be happening for you in your life. Just want to go back to that moment, though, of your mom reading you this letter and crying. There are moments in people's lives where, you know, they, they'll tell me about having been hurt by something, but then they need to take care of the other person. And that that's when you get a sense of there being narcissism. I will sometimes talk about this on the show of a previous relationship I'd been in where I realized that was what was happening, but only years into it, because this was before I knew about it. But I remember, you know, this person not, not being nice to me, and then I wasn't quite sure what to do because getting quiet was seen as being passive aggressive. Crying was a, seen as a manipulation. Raising my voice, which was just saying no, just being definitive in my voice was abusive. I, I was left without a lot of choices of how to respond well. But whatever it was, however I responded, I then needed to attend to this other person's feelings about the way I responded. So what got lost in all of it was what had happened to me. And I then went into sort of caretaker mode and there was no space left for my feelings. And so I just wonder if in that moment you started getting this sense or maybe not a conceptualization of it, but just, you know, we're talking about my father writing a letter and saying he can't see me. Shouldn't it be that she's taking care of my feelings rather than crying to me about something? Yeah, I, I vividly remember that moment. I was eight at the time. And I remember that we were talking about it, uh, sitting in the, in the sofa in the living room. 
And she started crying about that she was so sad that she couldn't give me a dad. And I just remember the feeling of my own feelings just kind of shutting down. So I just became kind of numb and having to comfort her, like be the adult emotionally, I guess. One more thing before you go. Thank you so much to Thomas for starting to share his story. This is the first part of a two-part conversation with him where he talks in such great detail and will continue to do so next week about being raised with the kind of parent he was raised with. Something that he mentioned I want to be able to get into a little bit more. One of the reasons that it is very important, first of all, to talk about this kind of perspective of someone feeling like they were involved in something very kind of emotionally insidious, manipulative, controlling, and confusing is that There are some people who will contact me and say, I don't think that I went through something that is as severe as what other people have gone through, like some of the stories I've heard and some of the groups people have been in. But I do actually relate to so many of the details of the control and the after effects that I think I was in sort of a cult of two or something that felt like it with a parent, with a partner. Some families even have come to me when one of their children turns out to be a narcissist and turns and starts to control them. That's actually an interesting thing that we learn about from some people. In fact, the parents of Keith Ranieri, who started Nexium, talk about that. And so I want to be able to go back now to something that Thomas talked about, which is this notion of future faking. Future faking is, well, it's a new term to describe an old thing. And new terms are great because they have a way of encapsulating a lot of words into one, two, or three words, and in this case, two. And future faking is when you are given a false hope and a false promise about something that you will be able to receive or have or know or be if you stay with this person who is controlling you. It even happens in multi-level marketing. If you stay here, you will make your million dollars. It happens within spiritual realms. If you stay with us, we will promise you eternal life. And it happens in relationships. You will be able to benefit from all that I will provide for you. And they usually choose something that they know is going to speak to you, whether it is security emotional security, financial security, just being able to feel special, being able to be with someone who you can trust. So they will promise you they will always be good to you and you can trust them. And I think what also happens is that it becomes kind of this distraction from what's really going on. People can get so attracted to this idea even though it's sort of this carrot that's dangled in front of them, constantly just out of their reach, but something that keeps them there trying harder to reach it or staying where they are in order to get it. And the distraction is you don't notice that in the past, typically, 
there's been no proof to support this claim that the things you've been promised in the past probably have not come your way. The narcissist is very good at making you feel like you were going to be offered something you can't get anywhere else, and you're involved in something very special with them. But if you take a moment to step away from the promise and the excitement of the promise, and instead, if you notice what your life has been like up until then, if you notice that it's not something that you really have benefited from so far, then I think it's important to be able to say to yourself, what proof do I have? What proof do I have that the person's promises are actually going to be something he or she cares about fulfilling if that so far hasn't happened yet? Future faking is something also that happens with people who get involved in large group awareness trainings. If you get involved in this, you will be able to get over all of your fears. You will never be a victim again. You will know how to move through the world having ultimate confidence and self-awareness. And then by the end of a particular workshop, if you don't have it yet, well, that's because you need to take another workshop. And this was only an introduction to the ideas that you're going to benefit from. Or you may not have done enough homework or you may not have come to enough workshops to really reap the benefits yet. So come back and sign up for more and pay for more. And let's see if we can use you for as long as possible while dangling this carrot in front of you. It is something that I think is very cruel. It's something also that kids deal with when there is a parent who moves out of their life and then promises to come pick them up and spend time with them and doesn't show, or promises to support them and stops paying support and then is AWOL. A lot of people hope that promises that are made to them are going to be kept. And as I've mentioned in the past about human nature, we assume that what's true for us is true for other people. And if we would not make a promise without meaning to fulfill it, we might not assume other people say promises, other people mm, foretell what they're going to be providing for us or what we're going to get from being here, but really have no sense or no inclination, no drive, or no sense of responsibility or obligation to fulfill it. In that moment, typically future faking happens when there is this feeling on the part of the narcissist that you're not as enthralled or that you're thinking about moving away a little bit or you don't see their magic and their magical powers and prowess and what's wonderful about them as much as you did before. So they need to make sure they have a happy customer again, someone who is going to buy in to what they're offering. And so I would caution you about people who make promises, people who say what is going to happen to you in the future when there's no history of promises being fulfilled in the past. And there's also no way to prove that the things they're promising could ever really come true, like eternal life. How do you prove that? 
the thing that also Thomas talked about that gets added into this mix that adds insult to injury is that when you're with someone who is a manipulator, if they seem to be making promises again that they have no interest in fulfilling and you feel disappointed and you feel used, you feel lied to, you feel deceived, still, when that person is having a hard time, the person who made hollow promises to you, you're supposed to take care of them. You're supposed to hold them together. You're supposed to reassure them that everything will be fine. And also, there are plenty of times that you're supposed to reassure them that you're fine with not getting the thing that they promised and that you understand and you're not going to hold it against them. Somehow you need to make it okay for them. The focus will always be on them. And I hope for all of you listening out there that you find yourself in a relationship with someone who actually feels that they have to back up what they say or they shouldn't say it at all. And if you're upset about it, they don't show that they don't care and rather have you reassure them that it's okay, but that you get to have your reaction to it. You get to have your feelings and they care about you. A lot of people feel that they're on empty when they have to go in and hug another person who is the one who drained them and left them feeling empty. And so if that's ever your experience, it's most definitely time for you to see it as it is. And if you can, leave it as it is. And let that person be taken care of by somebody else. And it's time for you, actually, to get your needs met and to be with people who mean what they say. Talk to you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Please support Indoctrination on Patreon at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Be sure to give us a follow on our social media. Find us on Facebook and Instagram using at Indoctrination Podcast. And for Twitter, find us at at underscore indoctrination. We love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. And for more updates on the show, visit our website at www.podpage.com forward slash indoctrination.